I'm back and welcome to of Monsters and Crime. We will officially call this season two. Uh, I took a very long hiatus, um, but I'm back for now, at least. I'm here to deliver your favorite, uh, to give you nightmares and anxiety. Um, I have so much to report over the last fucking year and a half. I can't believe I went over a year without recording. Like, what the actual fuck is wrong with me? Um, too much to talk about here, but uh, I did take a few trips. I went to Scotland, and it was fabulous and beautiful. Uh, I spent most of my time in Glasgow, um, and then saw the castle in Edinburgh, and got to hold a little baby owl named Haggis. And that was really awesome. Um, and I also got to spend some time with my bestie. Um, I also recently had a trip to Mexico, and that was fun and warm in the middle of Midwest freezing-ass cold winter. Um, don't really want to spend a whole lot of time talking about myself, but I wanted to do this new thing. Um, we'll see how it goes. It's a Wikipedia article of the day, and today's happens to be uh, an article. I have a kitty here. So, hi kitty. Um, it's an article about a video game called The Longing, and it's a 2020 point-and-click adventure game created by independent developer. You know what? We're going to skip this Wikipedia this week because it looks kind of boring anyways. Um, so, I guess we'll just get right into it. Um, Let's get into tonight's murder. So tonight I'm doing one of my favorites and it's super well known um, and it's the murder of um, Elizabeth Short aka the Black Dahlia. It's old and it's cold. So here we go. Uh, born on July 29th, 1924 in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, her parents moved to Medford, Massachusetts with her four sisters. Her father, Cleo, what he does for a living is he builds miniature golf courses for a living. What a joyous life. Until um, the horrible stock market crash of 1929 when he loses everything overnight and all of a sudden they're poor so you'd think a miniature golf course wouldn't get tangled up in the crash but you wouldn't believe the dark money in miniature golf courses uh, but that's the next episode all the dirty mafia money that goes into building a huge dinosaur or whatever they have at miniature golf courses um so, uh, okay, they, they go broke overnight, and then a year later, the father, his name's Cleo, um, his car is found abandoned on the Charlestown Bridge, 
And the body's never recovered, but everyone believes it was a suicide. I mean, he just lost everything. He's poor. I would assume it was a suicide, too. The man's fucking depressed. Um, So Elizabeth is just six years old when this happens. So her mom, Phoebe May, has to get a job as a bookkeeper, and they have to move into a smaller apartment. Um, It's just her and her five daughters, and she basically has to keep everyone afloat by herself. Now, on top of that, Elizabeth starts to develop lung problems. So she's had bad asthma, and then she gets bronchitis, and then um, she has to go and get lung surgery. So she ends up dropping out of high school her sophomore year. Um, Her doctor recommends that she gets out of Massachusetts during the winter, which any doctor would recommend for anyone, um, and go down to Miami for a warmer climate. So she does that. She goes down to stay with family and friends. Um, And in 1942, are you ready for this twisteroo? Elizabeth's mother gets an apology note for what she, uh, from what she thought was her dead husband, but it turns out old Cleo just staged the suicide and moved on out to California to start over after the crash of 29. What a dick. He's like, yeah, you know, this stock market crash hit me really hard so what I'm gonna do is leave my five daughters and wife and go ahead on my own I'm gonna make it easy on them by making them think I killed myself right I'm just gonna add a layer of intense tragedy on top of it and then good luck this winter Uh, and uh, also one of the girls has consumption so cool okay so Uh, He had gone out to California. He moved to Northern California, um, a town called Vallejo, which a lot of Zodiac activity happened around that area. Um, So if you've heard of that area, that's probably why you know that city. If you're familiar with the Zodiac Killer, something I may cover in the future, maybe in another year when I do another one of these. Uh, Hopefully it won't take that long, but um, I've got a long list of shit that I need to do, and I'm going to try to stay on top of it. Um, So um, this city, Vallejo, um, it's basically the part of the North Bay that is one big marsh. So if you like marshlands, gnats, mosquitoes, short puddles of still water, um, Vallejo, definitely your next vacation spot. Um, There's also a marine world with many trapped marine animals. It's just beautiful. It is truly the place where all dreams die. Um, So Elizabeth Short, who's a person who probably has some of the worst luck of anyone that I've ever read about, um, she tells her mom, I'm going to go and live with dad. She's 18, so she can do what she wants. Um, She's like, I'm going to go to California. So she goes to live with her father, who the last time she saw him was when she was six. Um, So she's like, it's going to be great. Um, He's a a longshoreman. Like, we'll get along fine. And within a year, she moves out. So it does not work out. 
Um, she moves in with some friends in Lompoc, California. Anyways, it's two and a half hours north of LA, and she gets a job at the base exchange at Camp Cook, which is now uh, Vandenberg Air Force. Um, so that also doesn't last long. And soon she decides to move to Santa Barbara, which is nice if you breed golden retrievers, but as a 19 year old who keeps getting kicked out of everywhere that she's lived, um, Santa, and, and also she's got bad lungs, uh, Santa Barbara just is not a great starter city. But while she's living there, um, she gets arrested on September 23rd, 1943 for underage drinking. Get it, girl. Um, like, every time I see a picture of, of her, I want to um, go out and, like, get a perm. Like, her hair, she just has insanely amazing hair. It's beautiful, curly, dark gorgeous and she also has eyes that say why don't you go fuck yourself and it's a suggestion you don't have to take it so she goes she gets sent back to Medford to live with her mom but she's like here's the thing I'm just gonna go to Miami so she skips out on Medford and she goes to Miami and there she meets Major Matthew Gordon Jr. so he's a decorated Army Air Force officer in the second Air Commando group and she knows him for a couple years um, and they start dating and while they're dating he gets deployed to the China Burma India theater operation of World War II so he gets deployed um, to a, a major military action it's kind of towards the end of World War II um, but she tells her friends that he's written her a letter and um, proposed uh, while he's over there. So he writes her a letter and proposes. She writes back and she accepts. And, um, oh, he wrote the letter while he was recovering from his injuries from a crash that he survived in India. So she accepts his proposal. And then on August 10th, 1945, Major Gordon is killed in a second plane crash. And it's less than a week before the war ends. So super sad, super tragic. Um, so she's like kind of a widow, I guess. Um, so young, brokenhearted. So she does what all the brokenhearted people of the world do. She moves to Los Angeles. Um, so on July or in July of 1946, she moves to Los Angeles and, um, initially it's to visit an army air force lieutenant, Joseph Gordon Fickling. Um, so she's found a new guy, and he's stationed at the Naval Reserve Air Base in Long Beach. So she's going to do the commute. She's going to do the Long Beach romantic commute. She's all about it. I guess she had dated him when she lived in Florida. So they knew each other. She was into it. They started dating. So Betty, as I'm sure her good friends called her, um, she gets a job as a waitress when she gets to L.A., um, and she gets an apartment behind the Florentine Gardens nightclub, which is on Hollywood Boulevard. Some of these details don't fucking matter at all, and some of them are a mouthful, but I'm doing it. Um, 
So there's rumors that um, she had dreams of becoming an actor, but she had no known credits, which is kind of meaningless. I mean, um, she'd wanted to be an actor really bad, but never gotten a job. And I feel like most people in Los Angeles, that's kind of their situation. Uh, why are we basing anything on credits? Like, it, you can put anything on IMDb, literally. That's how the internet works. Um, but they also said um, it reflects kind of how awful and vicious, I guess, the press was back then. Um, it was especially horrifying in the 30s and 40s. You know, like, press shows up at crime scenes at the same time as the police. So they're like, hey, I just took a picture of this. And uh, if you want to get over here and get this taken care of. So there was a lot of that kind of action. So the story of the Black Dahlia, um, she's often referred to as like a non-working actress. Um, they say she dated a lot. She went out with a lot of men. They talk about her uh, going out with married men, that she drank at bars a lot, that she had a lot of sex. And to that, I say, fucking good. At least she got to have some fun, right? There's nothing wrong with that, um, truly. Um, so now we're up to the night she disappeared. It's um, January 9th, 1947, and she'd just gone on a quick trip to San Diego with a 25-year-old married salesman named Robert Red Manley. Now, he claims that he dropped Elizabeth off at the Biltmore Hotel in downtown L.A., where she was planning on meeting one of her sisters who had just flown in from Boston. And members of the staff of the Biltmore did recall seeing her there at the lobby phone. And she was also reportedly seen um, at the nearby cocktail lounge soon after. But six days after, on the morning of January 15, 1947, a young housewife named Betty Bersinger is walking her three-year-old daughter up to the um, shoe repair shop in Lemert Park in Los Angeles. Uh, when she crosses the street and she goes up, there's like a bunch of empty lots because there's a big housing boom and then it all slowed down during the war. So there was like empty lots around. Um, they haven't quite built the houses yet. So she sees what she believes to be a mannequin uh, laying in the grass um, in the empty lot in front of her. But the more steps she takes towards towards it, um, the more she realizes it is not a mannequin. It is the naked, bisected, exsanguinated, mutilated, and explicitly posed body of a 22-year-old woman. Betty Bersinger freaks out. She screams. She grabs her daughter. She runs to a nearby house, and she calls the police. Uh, the two responding officers arrive. Um, they see what Betty said was there. They confirm that it actually is what it is and they call for backup so when the detectives arrive they actually start screaming because now all these people from all the screaming before and all the hubbub all all these people have started gathering around and of course the press is there um the second the police know the press knows like that's how it was back then um, so when the detectives come, they have to actually get everyone off of the crime scene and out of the crime scene. Like people are walking around the vacant lot. They're walking around the body and 
they have to clear the area so they can investigate. So Detective Lieutenant Jesse Haskins, who was one of um, the first responding detectives, he describes the condition of the body when he arrives at the crime scene. Quote, the body was lying with the head toward the north, the feet towards the south, the left leg was five inches left of the sidewalk, the body was lying face up, and the severed part was jogged over about 10 inches, the upper half of the body from the lower half. Uh, there was a tire track right up against the curbing, and there was what appeared to be a bloody heel mark in the tire track. And uh, on the curbing, which was very low, there was one spot of blood, and there was empty paper cement sack laying in the driveway, and it also had a spot of blood on it. It had been brought there from another location. The body was clean, and it had appeared to have been washed. End quote. Um... <clears throat> Now, if you choose to go online and look at the Black Dahlia crime scene photos, don't do that. I, I don't suggest it. They are some of the worst, most horrifying pictures and also the most debasing photos that I've ever seen. Um, so the body went to the morgue for the coroner to examine. Um, he reports that the body is five feet, five inches. She weighs 115 pounds, light blue eyes, brown hair, and badly decayed teeth. Woo woo. Um, so there, I don't know, there are ligature marks on her ankles, wrists, and neck, and, um, an irregular laceration with superficial tissue loss on her right breast. She has superficial lacerations on the right forearm, forearm, the left upper arm, and the lower side of the chest. And she has multiple lacerations on the face and head, including, and this is the very infamous part, he cut a three inch long gash on the right side of her face and a two and a half inch long gash on the left side of her face. Um, as to cut a big smile into her face. And there's also noted bruising on the front and right side of her scalp with a small amount of bleeding in the subarachnoid space on the right side, which is consistent to um, blows on the head. The body had been washed so clean so they couldn't find any fluids. There's no sperm found on the body. Um, her pubic hair had been removed. And there were numerous cuts in like a crisscross pattern across her pubic area. And most luckily, and thank God, most of her injuries um, are believed to have been sustained post-mortem. However, because of the ligature marks, they do know that she was tortured in some way for days. Um, the official cause of death was hemorrhage and shock. And... It didn't go unnoticed that the bisection of the body was a clean professional job. And in a sworn testimony before the Los Angeles County Grand Jury, Detective Harry Hansen said he believed that the bisection was done, quote, by a very fine surgeon. And the cut was not vicious. It was all uh, very clean and precise and done like a medical procedure. So... They basically have to, um, well, because she's an unknown person, 
like there's nothing on her person at all. So they have to take fingerprints off of her hand and they send them to the FBI in Washington. And that's when they identify her as Elizabeth Short of Medford, Massachusetts. Um, now, there's a lot of different rumors about how the Black Dahlia got named. Some people say that there were just people in a soda shop and they just made it up in a soda shop. Um, certain reporters of the time claim to have named her. But the one that I like to believe is from a lady named Aggie Underwood. She was a city desk editor and she was one of the first um, crime reporters on the scene. And they say that she had her photographer run out and go buy a flower so that she could leave it there and be like, it's the Black Dahlia. Like she basically saw the body and knew it was going to be this huge story um, that wasn't going away and she knew that a nickname should be coined and there's not really proof of any of those but I vote for the third that's my vote um, so uh, there's also other newspapers that named it the werewolf murder because she was attacked so viciously and terribly but that didn't stick um, <clears throat> so once she's identified, the police start going around and they start talking to all of the eyewitnesses from the night that she disappeared. And um, they then release this special police bulletin. So basically to find out any other information that they can get on Elizabeth, that's what this bulletin's intentions are. Um, so the bulletin reads... Last seen January 9th, when she got out of a car at the Biltmore Hotel, at that time she was wearing a black suit, no collar on coat, white fluffy blouse, black suede high heels, nylon stockings, white gloves, a full-length beige coat, carrying a plastic handbag with two handles in which she had a black address book. Subject readily makes friends with both sexes and frequented cocktail bars and night spots. Like, what the fuck is that even in there for? Uh, it also reads, leaving the car, she went into the lobby of the Biltmore and was last seen there. In conversation, subject readily identifies herself as Elizabeth or Beth Short. So, when the press then hit... Um, the stories got crazier and worse, like news items would describe her as a con artist, a drifter, a tease, a party girl, and a prostitute. But the final report given at the uh, Los Angeles grand jury stated explicitly that she was not a sex worker of any kind or an actor. <laughs> uh, they just had to throw that one right in there. Um, and of the eight or so headlines that I had looked at, there was only one of them did not mention her sexuality or like her sexual anything at all. It was like everything was always like party girl or they talked about her dating married men. Um, and like in one of the pictures, it would be like 22 year old girl murdered. But then the little writing or like the headline would say like 22 year old girl murdered. But then like the writing under the picture would be like basically love to party. Like the slut shaming opportunity was it was just, it's super crazy to read that now. Um, but the only one that didn't do that out of the eight that I read 
was um, from the Boston area, and they called her their hometown girl, which is sad, and I think she deserved that. Um, but, of course, the story is huge, and there's so many reporters on it. Uh, William Randolph Hearst had so many reporters. Like, he was just paying anybody to get information. Um, so uh, he then sets up a deal with the LAPD where he's saying, basically, I'll share the information they find with you if you let us break all of the stories. So you also then have to give us information that you get, you know, back to us, and then we'll break these stories. So there was a lot of press and a lot of police-directed press along the way because of that deal. Um, now, this is horrible. Um, there's a reporter at the Herald Express who... It was his job to find Elizabeth Short's mother in Medford. She had not heard the news yet. So it's so awful. Um, he finds her and he goes to call her, but he wants a scoop about what the family is like and what she was like growing up and what her life is like. And he knows that if he leads that phone call by saying your daughter has been terribly murdered, that the mother's going to start crying and she's going to get off the phone. So instead, he says, your daughter has won a beauty contest. And then Mrs. Short goes on, you know, about how lovely her daughter is and how she made her own life. And he milked her for all of the information that he could. He got the story and then he told her that um, she had been murdered. Um, so she was obviously shocked and so in disbelief that they actually had to call the Medford police and, um, send the police to her apartment so that she would believe that the news was true. Cause she was just like, this can't be true. Or maybe she was just like, I can't believe a fucking reporter would do something that gross. Um, so on January 23rd, just eight days after the body had been found, um, a man claiming to be the killer calls the editor of the examiner and he says he's going to mail them Elizabeth Short's belongings. So the next day a package arrives and it contains her birth certificate, business cards, an address book, photos, and a letter that the supposed killer wrote, you know, with like the individual cutout letters and words, you know, like, like a ransom note where you cut, a, cut them out and paste them together or glue them together. Um, and it says, here are Dahlia's belongings. So whoever sent it, um, clearly like it was either the killer or someone that had to have been right there in it. So they tried to get any fingerprints, but they couldn't get anything, no fingerprints off of anything because it was, because it was all coated in gasoline. So there was nothing they couldn't get a trace at all. So essentially, um, there's over 150 suspects questioned and many more false confessions were made. There's a bunch of letters like that, that were, where people are just sending in like the words cut out and saying like, don't try to find me. I killed her. And it's like, then don't fucking send the letter. But 
There's um, also a $10,000 reward for information that would lead to the killer. So a lot of people were trying to get into the mix, you know, they want that money. Um, so the case essentially goes cold. And in 1950, there's a radio show called Somebody Knows. And now I want to listen to this show so bad. It's basically like the earliest version of Unsolved Mysteries, like a radio version of it. And they basically told the entire case and they were like, if you know anything, call this number. Um, I would love to get my hands on any of that. Jesus fucking Christ. I was just fucking in the zone doing my thing. I fucking look over to my side and a fucking child is standing right next to me. Scared the fucking shit out of me. Okay. And I was like two seconds away from being done. So let's try this again. Um, so basically, I want to get my hands on this show, radio show called Somebody Knows. I would love to hear it because Unsolved Mysteries is like a fucking shit. Um, so anyways, um, to this day, 76 years later, this case is still unsolved and it is one of the most famous, talked about, and theorized murders of this century, I truly believe. And that is the murder of Elizabeth Short, aka the Black Dahlia. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>